thank you for listening to this podcast message from Stowe Presbyterian Church. This message was given by Pastor Bob Stanley. So I'll never forget, I was in junior high, I think. It was all the way back in the dark ages of probably like 1989. And I was at the mall with one of my friends, and we were going to a junior high dance. Now, I was a Christian school kid, so going to a junior high dance was a big deal because at my school we didn't have dancing or kissing or anything like that because it led to dancing. And dancing was bad, so we didn't do it. So when I got to go to junior high dance, it was a big deal. So some of my friends and I, we hit the mall. Now, those of you that are young, a mall is where we used to shop before the Internet existed, just so you know. It's funny, I was at the mall the other day, and uh, I, I had got a pair of dress pants, and I was at the Dillard's, and the, the gal there said, hey, I see your bag. Were you uh, picking up your new iPhone? And those of you that know me know I, I was. And I said, yes, yes, I was. And they said, we're so happy when Apple launches something because everyone comes to the mall. <laughs> Times, they are a-changing, huh? They are. So back in 1989, we still went to the mall. We still went to middle school dances and things like that. And my, my friend wanted to make a big impact at the dance, so he got some brightly colored Smurf blue denim jeans. You know, denim, like bright blue. I mean, you could have seen these things from space. And he went in, and I thought, that's a little too much. I'm just going to wear my acid-washed acid washed, uh, Z Cavaricci jeans for the ladies. They'll like that. That's what I'm going to go with today. And so we went to the mall. Some of you that had kids my age, you understand what I'm talking about. The crazy stuff we wore in the late 80s, early 90s. And 10 minutes into the dance, my friend had received uh, mixed reactions. He was getting high fives from some people. They were excited to see him. And other people were kind of in the corner pointing and whispering among themselves. But one thing was for certain. He had made a memorable impact. His outfit was certainly memorable. And as we go into Romans chapter 12, Paul is taking all that we have remembered, all that we've been taught in Romans 1 through 11, and he's going to apply it. He's going to attempt to put it into very practical terms for us today, for our lives. He wants us to take all we've been learning about the gospel and about God's grace, and he wants us to be able to put it into action. It's important today to remember the call of the gospel is to be changed. It is the call to be different inwardly and also outwardly in how we act, who we are in our hearts, in the depths of our soul and being, and then what we do with that and how we act. It's the call to be more and more like Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today, what it means to become more like Jesus. As we move into Romans 12 through 14, the first 11 chapters have laid this doctrinal, this biblical foundation going back a great deal of the Old Testament. And now we're going to put some legs on some of this. What do we do with this? Romans 12 through 14, they are chapters that are much more action-oriented, and yet they are very convicting. They're actually hard because now we see what it takes to make this happen. What Paul's going to teach us in Romans 12, 1 through 2, it's not some special occasion attire like my friend's special jeans that he wore to the dance. This is what we call the requirement, the foundation of everyday Christian life. It's not where we stand out for one moment or for one night, but Paul is going to give us here a heartfelt appeal. It's to all of us. It's a passionate, it's a powerful charge for all believers to live a transformed, a changed life, a life that is much more like Jesus. The gospel calls every one of us who claim Christ to look, act, walk, talk, and simply be different because of what Christ has done for us. So let's take a look here at familiar passage, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Familiar passage, I'm sure you've heard it before. Romans 1 through 11 taught us that those in Christ receive grace where condemnation belongs. That's what we understand as we become Christians. Even where it is deserved, God brings mercy to us. And recognizing our own sin and our own brokenness, we understand more the nature of who Jesus is. As the Savior, we are to follow in our lives. We learn in Romans 5, for example, how the cross reveals God's heart for us, that we are His redeemed treasure. And that's what you are. You're a treasure to God, bought with the precious blood of Jesus. Consider the words of Romans 5 here and see the purpose of the gospel, not just to save our souls for eternity, but to transform our everyday existence in the here and now. So let's read these words together. Let's look here. We remember, if you remember these, you were here, Romans 5, 6 through 8. If not, this is important to understand. For while we were still weak at the right time, come on, you can read with me, you can do this. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the gospel. You couldn't earn it. You could never deserve it. It doesn't matter how good you are, how obedient you are. If you look all nice like I do today, so many of you came up to me and said, why are you all dressed up? Do you have a funeral? I must be dressing down too much in the summer for you guys. But as we've talked about in Romans 11, that outward appearance, we want to look good. We want to look good. But what Paul's been teaching us, what Paul's been showing us from the history of God's redemption, it's what's in our hearts that comes out in our lives. That's what it's about. The gospel requires us to actively respond, to continually and consistently respond, that we are to become more like Jesus. That's what it means. God's mercy calls to us, even shouts at us, that as we know that Christ is our Savior, we would belong more to Him. We would be His redeemed children. We would imitate, we would act like Him. And we've learned about that for certain in Romans. But in Romans 12, 1 and 2, we put that reality into action. We respond to what the gospel requires. If we know Christ, if we belong to Him, if we've experienced His mercy, if we've experienced His grace, we cannot and we do not stay the same people. That's not how it works. Yes, we are still sinners, and yes, we have a lifetime of learning and spiritual growth yet to come, but the depth of our hearts, it's going to be different. We become aware in the depths of our hearts of our sinfulness, and we place our lives, we place who we were versus who we become in contrast to the extravagant mercy of God we have experienced. This holy and magnificent God called us into new life, into new understanding of Him. And once we know that, once we experience that, nothing stays the same. I'll never forget, I've shared this before with some of you, I wrecked my truck when I was a teenager, and I had to call my dad, and he had to come pick me up at the accident. And 
Because I'm so ecologically conscious, I had partially recycled the truck already. Uh, it was wrapped around a tree in about 15 pieces, much easier for them to pick up and to take to the junkyard. When I was done with it, I mean, it was total. All jokes aside, I was terrified. I was terrified of what my dad would think, what he would say and do when he saw the mangled wreck that was once my very nice truck that I tried to take care of, and yet he was absolutely, he was absolutely completely compassionate with me. He ran up and he hugged me and told me it was okay, and he never said that what I did was right because it was kind of my fault it had happened. I was a teenage boy, right? The loss was my fault. Yet the love and mercy that my, God, that my dad showed me, it really, it mirrored what God shows us, and it changed me. It transformed who I am. And remember, as we've learned about God's gracious mercy, it's absolutely, you know, grace is what you can't, what you don't, what you could never deserve. And that kind of mercy is hard to forget. If you experience that, you may be thinking of a time in your life where that's happened. It's hard to forget it's hard to forget, my dad sacrificed his own deserved frustration with me for what I had done, and he taught me a deeper lesson. And years later, when my own son called, because he was in an intersection in Kent and had an accident, and he called me, what do you think the first thing I thought of was? Right? Now this is my chance. So I said, what are you doing, you idiot? No, I didn't do that at all. I... <laughs> Sometimes that happens, though, right? And then you regret no, I actually, I didn't. I said, it's okay. I could hear the frustration. I could hear the fear in his voice. And I was transported back to that moment in my own life. And I said, it's okay. I love you. I asked God to give me the patience and the understanding and the mercy I needed. Not in my own power, but by the Spirit's power. God, if you have my life, if I belong to you, I need you to transform me. I need to change how I'm even looking at this situation. That I would understand, that I would respond and be more like Jesus. The gospel requires a response. And the nature of that response in Christ is most often one that requires sacrifice from us toward others, just as Christ sacrificed himself for us as we are all sinners. Let's consider this concept of sacrifice for a minute. Romans 12:1 clearly is talking about this. Paul takes us back to the beginning of God's covenant of grace, all the way back to the children of Israel, the imagery of the Old Testament and that sacrificial system. Now, there were lots of sacrifices that happened in the Old Testament. There were lots of them. But two of them chiefly occurred at the temple, two that happened mostly. And coming out of God's covenants with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all that God did with Moses, he sets up the tabernacle and all that he does. God keeps renewing the covenants of grace that Jesus Christ, we know, eventually comes to fulfill. We've already learned that in Romans. And all the sacrifices in the Old Testament are pointing forward to what Jesus Christ will do as a once and forever sacrifice. Now, the two that occurred most commonly at the temple, the tabernacle, that time forward, were the sacrifice of atonement and the sacrifice of praise. And you'll notice here in Romans 12, 1, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So this is passionate. God's saying, through Paul, by the Holy Spirit. He says, look, Paul's saying, hey, pay attention. I'm begging you. I'm appealing to you, all of you, by the mercies of God. We know mercy. When you've experienced mercy, you understand it. You want to give mercy. You love receiving mercy. You don't appreciate grace till you need it, right? But because of all of that, Paul's saying, 
offer your bodies, and by that he means your whole self, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, or maybe your translation, if you have it in front of you, says pleasing to God. Which is your spiritual worship? So what is he talking about here in terms of sacrifice? Now, the most extravagant sacrifice, you have that sacrifice of atonement and sacrifice of praise. Now, the atonement is the idea of paying for your sin. The fancy theological term we use for that is propitiation. You don't need to remember that. There's not a quiz. But it's the idea of paying the price. We've talked about this. So the, the burnt offering that we learned about, the deepest form of an atonement sacrifice that occurred in the temple back in the Old Testament, even in the time of Jesus, was the burnt offering. And this happened when you bought the choicest, and it was a bull, it was a sheep, or it was a goat. And what you bought depended on your financial availability. Not because you had already paid your Netflix bill for the month or something like that. That's not what we're saying. But who you were and what you could afford. Because the idea of the sacrifice is it was extravagant. If you were wealthy, you bought a bull. If you were middle class, you bought sheep. And if you didn't have as much going on maybe in your life, if you were struggling, making ends meet, you bought a goat. But for any of those people, whatever their social status, their socioeconomic situation, it was a costly investment because meat was scarce. It was expensive. It was not something that was commonly had. And so you took something that was a perfect animal, something that you had to really spend on, something that was not readily available to you in your budget, and you would take that and you would place that on the altar. You would place that on the altar because you had to experience the cost of your sin firsthand. You saw the loss of life that occurred in Romans 3, we learn that sin brings death, that the wage of sin, death, is something that comes in God's word. So if you want to read more about what we're talking about in the Old Testament, some of you always ask me, where does this come from? So go to Leviticus chapter 1 this week. You can write that down in your bulletin if you want to learn more about this. Leviticus 1 will talk more about that this week. But they would lay hands on the animal. You can read more about this. And they would pray for forgiveness of their sins. The animal they'd purchased, they would take it, they would lay it on the altar, and they would pray over that animal. And they would confess their sin. Oftentimes they would sing a psalm. And then that animal would be burnt to a crisp after it was killed, after the blood was shed. Because wages of sin is death. After that blood was shed, they had burned the entire animal. Everything was consumed. Nothing was left for them to eat. All the choicest animal went to God. That's what it meant. And then they would have another sacrifice. Sometimes it was incense or something else or doves or something. And they'd have a sacrifice of praise where they would thank God. They would praise God that he had forgiven their sins, that their sins were atoned for. They were paid for. And that's often what happened. That was a cycle that went on over and over until Christ came at the temple. Now today, think about your life and what Christ purchased for you and for me at Calvary. Think about that. He has purchased all of us here and all believers in all lands and all times, past, present, and future. Christians here, Christians in Syria, in Africa, in China, those past, those believers yet to become, those who are born today that God has called as his own. Those being born right now that God has called. All of those people were purchased at the cross. All of us. He has bought all of us collectively and all that is within us individually. He's bought our good, our bad, and our ugly. 
Have you ever considered what this verse declares to be true? Jesus wants all of you on that altar because at Calvary, he purchased all of you. All of you means all of you, even the stuff you don't want anyone else to know about. All of us, all of you and I belong to him. Not just to be offered once, but this is the paradoxical language because it, going back to the Old Testament, they offered sacrifices over and over because they sinned over and over. But yet what he's saying here, it's the complete sacrifice. It's a continual sacrifice. You are a living sacrifice and you're also a lasting sacrifice to God for God. That's what we're talking about here. You're a living sacrifice to God. God is going to take you and place all of you on the altar, and you're going to die to yourself and your everything, your wants, your hopes, your needs, your fears, your pains, your frustrations, your gifts, your abilities, your silver and your gold, your career, your future, your past, your spouse, your hands, your feet. All of you means all of you as a living and lasting sacrifice to God for God. Unlike those Old Testament ones offered over and over, you don't burn up and God starts over. You are on that altar. You are there 24-7, 365 days per year. Think back to the sacrifices we just talked about and what Paul is telling us. Do you guys remember in Genesis 22 where Abraham almost sacrifices Isaac and God stops him? Have you ever thought about that Isaac was old enough that he could have just gotten off that altar? He was tied up and this, that. You don't think when he went up the hill and saw that they had the fire and they had the wood and they had everything except for the sacrifice. He understood. He was a teenager, young adult. Abraham was old. You don't think he could have gotten away? I think he probably could have. I think he could. And God stops Abraham and says, no, 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 don't do that. You didn't hold anything back, Abraham. You didn't. But Abraham and Isaac, both in that situation, trusted in God because Isaac could have gone full MMA on Abraham. He could have taken him out and put him in like the figure four leg lock and said, Dad, we, we're not doing this. I mean, let's be honest. I like to tell my son I can take him. I cannot take my son, and I pray he does not listen to this podcast or see what we're streaming. He could take me out. He can. He's a big, strong, 20-something guy. Why didn't he? He trusted that God had a plan. And God says, Abraham, no, stop. Don't do that. Don't do that. You understand that I'm asking all of you, and you didn't hold anything back, but that's not what this is about. No matter what you do, God says to them, as he says to us, only I can save you from your sin. God does what Abraham was prepared to do because only Christ could be that atoning sacrifice once and for all for our sin. Romans 6.4 reminds us, this is all pointing to Romans 12, about what it means that we have an understanding of forgiveness, that we have God's Spirit. When you make Christ your Savior, that Spirit dwells within you to guide us, that we would have living and lasting change, that we would become more like Jesus. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in Newness of life. When we say we're born again in Christ, that we have new motivations, that we have new ways to live, we have a new way to operate. The old song Switchfoot did. We have a new way to be human. 
God's saying that's what it means. And how you do that is you place your life on the altar. You belong to me, God says. I gave Christ for you, now you give yourself back. We live into that call, and we give Christ everything in our lives, and we find when we do that, when we give up everything, we have contentment, we have peace in the most difficult circumstances. We've been talking about this. We have victory over the circumstances and pains of life. It's not because they all vanish or they all go away, but because our hearts and our lives are answering the call of the cross of Calvary, that call that's been placed upon our lives. When we answer that call, our lives, our hearts, our motivations begin to change. Conversely, when we don't stay up on the altar, when we don't surrender, because we can get up and run away just like Isaac. We can do that. When we don't, when we don't allow God to transform us as a holy offering to be more like Jesus, we're frankly miserable people. We're miserable people. We are lost, we're afraid, and we feel like a rudderless ship in the storms of life. That's just what happens. That's what happens. We can, just as Christ warns us in Mark 8, 36, we can gain the whole world but lose our souls. That's what this is talking about, this moment when we choose, when we try to get down off the altar and live in our own power, for our own purposes, outside the shadow of the cross. God says, don't do that. He says, no, don't do that. You may gain all the stuff around you, but you're not going to gain what is of internal importance. Instead, God's telling us, he told us from the book of Genesis on, Genesis 22, you can read it this week, write it down. He says, present your bodies, all of you. That bird sacrifice is going to take all of you, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, your spirit, the depth of your soul. This word here in the original language is actually logikos. It's the Greek word. This is your reasonable, your Bible might say, this is your reasonable act of worship, or it might say your logical, depending on what translation you have. But this word spirit, the depths of your being, this makes sense to you. Once you understand who Christ is and what he's done, you can't stay the same and you have to live differently. And frankly, you don't want to stay the same because the grace of God has shown you a new life. And the transformation that God's grace performs in you, we reform folks, we call that irresistible grace. In the deepest part of your being, you have this irresistible grace of God. That grace of God that atones for your sin, it drives you to lay down your life in the deepest part of your being. You just know. You ever just say to somebody, I don't know, this is just the right thing to do. I feel it in my bones. Have you ever done something sacrificial that you didn't want to do, but you knew you had to do? Has God ever spoken to you and told you to do something that you knew you had to do it, but you really didn't want to do it? I, I just, I know we have to do this. That's what we're talking about right here in the deepest parts of you, in the depths of your soul. I need to be changed by God's grace. I need to share God's grace. I'm sure my dad felt like that that day with me. You just feel that this is the right thing to do. And when that happens, nothing else will satisfy you. It just makes sense. It's right. It's true. It's good. You have to do it. Experiencing the irresistible grace and mercy of God compels us to become living, lasting, logical sacrifices in our daily lives. That's the active response that the gospel requires of us. That's how we become more like Jesus. 
It's not just something we do when there's a mountaintop experience. It's not just something we do when it's easy. We want to be on that altar of faith. We want to do it. Yet, we're still sinners and we find ourselves trying to get up off and do it our own way. If you're like me, you do that often. Do you do that? I, I find myself doing that all the time. Are there moments when you think you know better than God? Have you had one of those yet this morning? Somebody in traffic gets in front of you and you think they deserve to die as if God shouldn't have put them in a car somewhere around you. I mean, I don't know, whatever it is for you. You have a neighbor whose dog always goes to the potty on your lawn. I know, whatever it is. And you find yourself wishing death on that person rather than speaking life to them. I mean, I don't know what it is for you. We try to get up off that altar. We try to do it our own way. We try to build our own kingdom. We try to say, make other people sacrifice for us. Romans 12, 2 says, this is not what God is calling us to do. This is not what God is calling us to be. Dr. Tim Keller says that we should have the rhythm of God's heart, the cadence, the heartbeat of God should be what we understand. And the question we're asking today is whether our hearts beat with God's because our hearts must beat with him. They must be with what the Lord's heart is beating. And we must place him first in all things. Romans 12, 2 is important here. We're going to learn how do we do this. What's it look like? The same rhythm that God spoke to Abraham and Isaac, the rhythm that David and Solomon and the sons of Korah and all those who wrote the Psalms had when they wrote those songs of praise, the heartbeat of the prophets calling the people back to God, to their first love. The call that God puts out in Revelation 2-4 when he calls the church, that's us, back to our first love. Now remember, Leviticus chapter 1, if you want to learn about this, Genesis 22, Revelation 2-4, he says, come back. John says in the Revelation, he says, come back, church, to your first love. Put God first. Get up on the altar. The consistent call of God. It's the same with Moses in the Ten Commandments. You will have no other gods before me. God is the same. God will never take second place. And once you've experienced his mercy, once you've had his grace, nothing else will satisfy you. You don't want him to have second place, even though you're a sinner. In your own life, maybe you have your own... Do you compare something to everything in your own life? Is there something you compare everything to? Let me give you an example of this. In my hometown in Elwood City, Pennsylvania, they closed down my favorite ice cream place last year. It was called the J&T. I don't know what the J and the T stand for for the life of me. Probably the names of the people that originally owned it, I don't know. But where I grew up, if you had ice cream, guess what you compared it to? J&T, hey, they opened an ice cream stand down in the valley. Everything's in a valley in Pennsylvania, if you didn't know that, or up on a hill. Down in the valley, you know, down in the valley, I got an ice cream stand. That's how people talk where I'm from, they do. How is it? I say, okay, it ain't no J&T. Okay. What is that for you? You know, it's a good burger, but it's not Swenson's. I met somebody the other day that hated Swenson's, and I almost felt like they hated America. They're like, I just have to be honest, I hate Swenson's. And I almost, I almost pulled the car over. I'm not going to say who it is. I was hurt. I was mildly offended. I'm not even from here, and I love Swenson's. Once you have that thing, that thing you compare 
everything to it. So when I go to ice cream places, I only have a sample spoon. I don't, eat, I don't really eat a lot of ice cream or things I'm not supposed to anymore. I worked hard to be in shape. I don't do that. But a sample spoon's good. And when we go somewhere like Mitchell's, which is really good ice cream, or Graders, or whatever your ice cream place is, I get a little scoop, and I take a taste, and I say, it's good, but it's not the JNT. You have somewhere like that. You have somewhere like that in your life. Romans 12, 2 is showing us how to put Romans 12, 1. It mirrors this logical, this rational, what we know and what we believe. What we reflect against, everything is placed against this thing. And the depths of our hearts and minds. This is what we compare everything to in our lives. And that's what Paul is saying. What drives the depths of your being? What matters the most? If you're going to place Christ on the throne of your heart, if he's going to be your Lord, if you're going to claim Christ to be the one that you worship, he atones for you, and yet you want to praise him just like they did at the temple. If that all makes sense, what captivates your thoughts and your passions? What's the thing you compare everything to? What drives the depths of your being? The parts of you that no one, I mean no one knows. Romans 12, 2 is calling us to this process by which we are actively thinking. Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be like everything around you. If everyone else says something is great, what's the one thing you say, you know what, it's not this. This is more. This is greater. This is better than all of it. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What drives the depths of your being, the parts of your life that no one else sees, not your spouse, not your parent, not anyone else, but what you and God see in the depths of your heart and your mind. If the Holy Spirit captivates you, you want to give everything to Christ. Your job, your future, your stuff, your hopes, your dreams. You want to lay that all on the altar and give it to God. It doesn't mean you're always succeeding in doing that. It doesn't mean that you're struggling with it. You are, but that is your deepest desire. It's your thing. It is. Every day you want more of God, and every day you want to leave more of yourself on the altar of obedience a little longer before you try to get up and get off. That's what Paul is calling us to understand. That's what he's telling us to understand is what captivates us. That's the question we have to answer. That's what we're being called to understand. 1 Corinthians 2, 11 through 14, Paul reminds us the key to a life in Christ is a mind captivated by God's spirit and by God's word. If you say, how do I do that? How do I compare that? How do I do that thing? It's calling us here in our minds to make sure the rational, the logical, it just makes sense. When you know God, when he's your thing, it's just going to make sense. 1 Corinthians 2, especially verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world. We used to think one way. But the spirit who is from God, that Holy Spirit that dwells within you says, hold on, don't do that. That doesn't taste that good. It doesn't that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Verse 13, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What this means, folks, is that we're not that bright. In fact, we're downright sinful. But when God starts to change your appetite, when you have different desires, 
things that used to taste good don't taste good anymore. What used to captivate your thoughts and desires, it doesn't work anymore. Oh, it can still happen, but you immediately go, oh, no. I want to get back up on that altar. And the things that God's word shows us that guides that process by which we discern what God's will is, which we understand, how we live it out, it's the word of God and the Holy Spirit that dwells within you as a believer. It's like training for a marathon. You have a bad day. You may not have your best time, whatever it is, but you're still out on the course. You're still running. You're still moving forward in that goal to be more like Jesus. It's a sacrifice that's holy and pleasing. That's your goal. I want to be more like Jesus. The mindset, just like if you're a runner, is not to give up, but you've got to move forward. You've got to belong. Even when we fall short, and we all fall short, the truth of God rings in the depths of our hearts, and it just makes sense to us. Because the Spirit and the Word have captivated our imaginings, our imaginations. God has all of our beings. We have become living sacrifices. Imperfect, yes. But seeking to become more like Christ, to be more like Him, who is perfect, who is holy, and who is pleasing. We are seeking God, and at the same time, we're looking at our lives to see what is within us that is not like Jesus. It just doesn't taste right. We confess our sin and we lay our whole selves on that altar to God and we say, take me, Father, just as I am, I'm, I'm all yours. I could run away and I could try to do it all my own way, but in the end, I know that only belonging to you will satisfy my soul's deepest longings. As Augustine reminds us, our hearts are restless until we rest in thee, O God. That's what we're learning. That's what Paul is saying. That's what God has always said. The question today, what captivates your thoughts and your desires? Are you in God's word when you're not here? Is there an emptiness in your life that just seems filled and just makes sense when you're in God's word, when you're with God's people? When someone here prays with you, when someone speaks with you, does God's word fill you up when you're empty? When you're having the worst day ever, do you open up an app on your phone for a devotion or read uh, our daily bread or something, and all of a sudden, something just clicks and you say, that's what I've been looking for. That's like what I love. That's, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I remember. That, friends, is the Spirit of God calling you in and reminding you that our lives in Christ are sacrifice. We are called to be different inwardly and also then outwardly because what's inside of us pours out into our lives. I love here, we're going to close with a quote. This is Reverend, this is Reverend Thabiti. Anawabale, can you say that name? That's a good one, huh? He was formerly, uh, he, he grew up here, he's, he's from America, but he grew up, he was uh, a Muslim and he converted to Christianity. But he kept his name to remind him that God is changing him, that God is making him someone different than who he once was. In his book, Captivated, he says this, Life lived in light of the resurrection includes radical sacrifices in faith. That's my question today. Will we respond? Will we surrender all of ourselves? Will God captivate our thoughts and our desires? Will, he, will we place all of ourselves on the altar to him today, tomorrow, and forever? Let's pray. God, that you would have all of us, that we would belong to you, that you would captivate our hearts and lives, that we would be changed to be more like you. God, that we would understand that no matter what we 
think satisfies us, no matter what we think will fill us, we know that only staying in you and God giving you all of us, God, that you would consume our whole lives, all of our stuff, all of ourselves, that we would understand that unlike a sacrifice that's a one-time thing, you're not calling us to some mountaintop experience. You're not calling us to one moment, but to a life where we continually, actively lay our lives down before you. That you would have all of us. That you would change all of us. Because once we know you, God, nothing else will satisfy. I pray for our church that we would belong more fully to you. That we would be more and more captivated by what matters to you that you would have us, that we would know your word, that your spirit would guide us, that we would see the opportunities to love and to share and to share sacrificially God's grace and how we interact with others. Not to take, not to harm, but to give, to love, and to serve. God, make that the cry of our hearts and our lives that we would be satisfied, that we would find our hope, that we would find our peace, our wholeness, our satisfaction as we are made more and more like Jesus Christ, our living sacrifice now and forevermore, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.